0: Well, uh, hello there. Uh, Great to um, be with you and to open God's Word with you, whether you're here, whether you're in the overflow, whether you're online. Um, It is a wonderful privilege to be opening a part of God's Word that maybe we're familiar with, Uh, maybe uh, we know quite well, Uh, but it's it's a really powerful passage, isn't it? So I'm keen to uh, get into it together with you. Um, As we begin... I just want to show you a, uh, a few pictures. Now, uh, just to be loving to you all, to give you due caution, some of these pictures that I'm going to show you, they uh, may not be for the faint of stomach. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, I, hope, I hope you haven't had too much breakfast. Um, I know some of you look kind of worried. Don't worry, it's okay. But um, uh, let's have a look. Let's go. All right, first picture. Oops, not that one. Here we go. Um, that um, is a fresh can of bear meat. That is a fresh can of bear meat. Um, In Finland, apparently, it is a delight to pop open a fresh can of bear meat, like kind of what we do with tuna. Uh, They have it with reindeer as well, um, and they just normally take it out for a picnic lunch. Um, I don't know if you'd fancy to try bear meat on a sandwich, but uh, in Finland, uh, that's what you might do. Um, Here's another picture um, that is a cracker, who can see what's in it? Those are wasps. Though this, this is a wasp cracker in Japan. Now, this is a delicacy, it's a delight. Uh, um, the added protein in the crackers, uh, I don't know, some, some, it's, it's a thing apparently. Hunters will catch these digger wasps in the forests, um, they will boil them in water, they will dry them and they will add them uh, to the cracker mix. Uh, One more picture for you. Uh, These are called, and I'm going to botch this, chicatanas. flying ants. Yeah, Flying ants, Um, they're a special delicacy and delight in South uh, Mexico, in Southern Mexico. Apparently, families catch these ants as they um, emerge from the ground after heavy rains, um, and then they use it to make a uh, spicy salsa for their tortilla and cheese. Now again, I hope that I haven't um, ruined um, dinner. Oh, sorry, lunch. Um, and uh, trust me, I left out some real stomach churners. There was a whole cooked um, sheep head that they have in Norway, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, as we look to you know our own heritage, as we look to our own um, uh, cultures and, and 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 backgrounds that we're from, I'm sure um, that there are delights in those cultures, in those backgrounds. Um, That we might enjoy that just don't make a whole lot of sense to other people. Yeah? We all, I think, to various degrees, we know and we enjoy and we have delights distinct to our cultures and backgrounds. And the reason why I wanted to show this, which is the reason why I'm talking about these sorts of cultural delights in a way, is as we come to our passage today, um, Paul makes much of a delight that is distinct to the believer. Paul makes much of a delight that is distinct to the believer. Now, it's not anything edible, but still, it is the delight that is distinct to a believer, and it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the people who aren't a part of it. What is that delight? Well, it's this. It's that as Christians, we delight in weakness. That as Christians, we delight in in weakness. Now, when I'm speaking about weakness or weaknesses, I'm speaking or thinking about anything that really, that might make us feel inadequate, that may make us feel insufficient, things that don't match up to some ideal or standard that we have. It could be physical, it could be intellectual, it could be personal, it could be relational, it could be mental. That weakness, that's what we're talking about here. And for the believer, maybe surprisingly, it's in those things that we find inadequate in us that is supposed to be a delight for us. Does that make sense? It's those things that we find inadequate in us that are supposed to be a delight for us, and we're going to unpack that more fully as we examine God's Word together, but for now, um, we see Paul says this right at the very end of our passage, doesn't he? Right? Um, let me read uh, chapter 12, verse 10 for you again. That is why, for Christ's sake, what does he say? I delight yeah, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Right? It's there. Clear as day. For Paul, delighting in weaknesses, as we will soon see, that's become a staple for his life. It's become a staple for his faith. And that sets, really, a believer apart from the rest of the world, doesn't it? Right, Everything that we know in our world, in the society that we live in, everything that we are taught to value, that just flies in the opposite direction of this. We don't value weakness. Right? Weaknesses are things that we improve or you know, things that we ignore or just wish that we didn't have. And ancient culture was no different, right, for Paul. As we've heard these last few weeks, um, Corinth, the city that Paul is writing to, uh, the church there, they are clamoring now towards these powerful, eloquent, outwardly gifted spiritual leaders who have rocked up the town. Right? Uh, Paul calls them super apostles, in quotation marks, ironically. Yeah? And, and the church is increasingly convinced that their spiritual father, the, the guy who, who, who God used to, to convert them, to save them, who has birthed this church, um, he is now no longer worth following. Right? Compared to these amazing new guys that have rocked onto the scene, Paul, you know, Paul's feeble, he's frail, he's weak, and that's come up time and time again in his book. See, Southwest, um, the ancient world values weakness probably just as little as we might today. And yet, the apostle Paul invites the Corinthian church and us, really by extension, to embrace delighting in weakness as he does, to make it a staple of our life, to make it a staple of our faith, as he does. And I believe in our passage, Paul gives two reasons, Yeah, two reasons why believers should delight in weakness. Uh, two reasons why we should delight. In, and um, if you're taking notes, it's on the outlines um, that are at go.swec.org.au outline if you want to follow along there. Um, but here's our roadmap today. Yeah? Here's our roadmap. Why should we delight in weaknesses? We should delight in weaknesses because, one, it can reveal those we sincerely love. And two, because we can learn to depend on God's power. Yeah? It can reveal those we sincerely love. We can learn to depend on God's power. Uh, Pray with me as we um, get into that. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that it might do its work in us today. We ask that it might convict us, challenge us, train us, encourage us, and cause us to fix our eyes on you anew. Help us to learn more of your mind and more of your will for your honor and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's begin at our first point. Uh, We delight in weakness because it can reveal those we sincerely love. Yeah? It can reveal those we sincerely love. Now, as we pick up from the beginning of our passage, from chapter 11, verse 16, the apostle, he's having a bit of difficulty getting through to the listening ear of the church. Yeah? His credibility, as we've said, among them, it's just been shot uh, because of the influence of these super apostles that have come into town. Right, The church just doesn't want to hear from him anymore. And so to get their attention, what does Paul do? Paul has to play a game that he doesn't really want to play. He needs to write and speak in a way that he doesn't really want to do. He has to be foolish for a moment. So that verse 16, he might do a little boasting. Yeah, He might do a little boasting. Chapters 10 through to 12 is called the fool's speech because Paul is foolish because he has to boast a whole lot. He knows it's utterly foolish to boast about um, accomplishments and abilities. He knows that such talk in verse 17 is not talking as the Lord would. But Paul has to reluctantly play this game because verse 18, many people are boasting in this way. Yeah, Heaps of people. See, these super-apostle teachers and preachers, they loved to make much about who they are. What they've seen, what they do, and through their charisma and appeal, they've captured the attention and the hearts of the church that Paul dearly loves. And so the church we see in verse 19, right? they gladly put up with these guys. Even when, in verse 20, um, these same super apostles, they've exploited them, they've taken advantage of them, they've metaphorically slapped them in the face because they've humiliated them publicly. But it doesn't matter for the church for some reason. Their CVs are just so impressive. Their speaking skills, they're just so eloquent. Their message of power and strength of victory is just so captivating that the church is just all in. And so, Paul, he's frustrated, he's fed up, and so he stoops to the level of the super apostles' foolishness so the church might hear him again. Now, he doesn't do this, he doesn't stoop to their level and start to boast because he needs to defend himself. Yeah, it's not like his ego needs preserving in some way or protecting. He boasts, he becomes a fool out of concern for the well-being of the church. He does it so that these sheep would hear the voice of the shepherd again. And so pick up with me from halfway through verse 21. Keep your Bibles open. From verse 21, what does Paul say as he begins to boast? He says, whatever anyone dares to boast about, verse 21, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, Paul says. Now, Paul's going, I'm speaking as a fool, right? But what do these foolish leaders boast about? Well, they boast about their ethnicity as Hebrews. I've got that. They boast about being Israelites with all the rights and privileges and heritage of being the people of God that the Israelites have. I've got that too. They boast about that they're descendants of Abraham, that, you know, they're heirs of the promises of God. I've got that in spades. I'm no less Jewish, no less a son of Abraham, no less an heir of the covenant than these fools. In fact, I'm more. Verse 23, Paul even boasts about being a superior servant of Christ. And he goes, man, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, not because he isn't superior. Yeah, of course he's more superior. He's established more churches, he's preached the gospel in more lands, he's won more converts, he's walked with God more fervently. By every metric, he's a superior servant. And so he isn't saying that he's out of my mind because it's false or anything like that. He just knows boasting like that is absurd. And And so Paul, as he begins to prove from verse 23 how he's a better servant of Christ, after he says, you know, I've worked much harder, did you notice? He abruptly changes his boasting. Yeah? He abruptly shifts suddenly. And for the rest of the chapter, he'll boast about not his accomplishments, but his sufferings in his work as an apostle. It's almost like he just he can't keep doing what he's doing. He can't keep speaking like these guys anymore. And so what does he say? Right, scan with me from verse twenty-three. Paul says, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, I've been exposed to death, I've been again and again whipped, beaten, I've been stoned, shipwrecked many a time, I've been homeless, I'm always in danger, I've been sleepless, famished, dehydrated, I've been impoverished. Right? Even the story that he gives about Damascus in verse 32 to 33, where he's right, lowered out of a basket from a window in the wall, right? um, to, be, to avoid being arrested by the authorities in Damascus, that, that's a story of weakness, it's a story of suffering. Remember, Paul originally left for Damascus with the sort of strength that the super-apostle loved. But on his way there, he meets Jesus. He's utterly transformed, and he now leaves Damascus humbled and weak. Because he's now a believer. He's now the apostle. See, why does Paul mention all of that? Why does he, in verse 30, choose to boast in things that show his weakness? How does that make him a better servant of Christ? Here's the answer. It shows his sincere love. It shows Paul's sincere love. See, what do the super apostles do? They've taken advantage. They've exploited. They've humiliated the people of God. And what does Paul do? Paul suffers for them. He experiences near death for them so that they and churches just like them would know and believe the gospel. Paul willingly experiences, he willingly endures all that he does in all of his labor and all of his toil because ultimately he loves God. And he loves God's church. That enduring such things, that's worthwhile out of his love for them. It's not a coincidence that at the climax of the trials that Paul talks about in chapter 11, right? At the very climax, verses 28 to 29, have a look. Verses 28 to 29, what does Paul say? Paul says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul is saying, my greatest suffering isn't anything that I've already talked about. It's tough, but it's not anything that I've talked about. My, my concern is for you to stand firm in your faith. I am so devoted to you. I am so concerned for you. I so love you that when you are in pain, I'm in pain. When you are spiritually weak, I feel it too. When you stumble into sin, I can't remain indifferent. I inwardly burn. Now, of course, this isn't a romantic love. Yeah, you know that. It's not a romantic love. This is a fatherly love. It's a protective love. It's a tender and empathetic love. This is a pastoral love on fire. And so for Paul, this weakness is worth boasting in. This weakness is worth delighting in. He loves God and he loves God's church. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Paul were to say, I experienced all this suffering and you know what? I would do it again. That you might know the love of the Lord Jesus and how much he loves you. Friends, we don't need to be an apostle to understand that our weaknesses show our sincere love. We, we know that, right? Um, if we just watch any superhero movie, what does the villain do when he wants leverage over the hero? What do they do? Right? They target those they love, right? Like there's probably some hostage situation tied up, and the hero has to choose between saving the city or saving the person he loves or whatever. Um, it is always the case that those we sincerely love are considered our weaknesses. yeah, The chink in our armor. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Four Loves, describes any sincere love positively as weakness. Right? He writes this. Follow along on the screen. To love at all, Lewis writes, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact... You must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies, with little luxuries, and avoid, avoid all entanglements, because to love is to be vulnerable. And do you see? When you give your love to anybody, anyone, you are making yourself vulnerable to them. You know, I only, I only learned recently that the, actual, the word vulnerable actually comes from two words meaning able and wound. Yeah? To be vulnerable by its very definition is letting yourself be able to be wounded. To make yourself vulnerable and weak. See, weaknesses can reveal those that we sincerely love, can't they? And as we see Paul's example in this letter, there's a challenge for us, I think. See, Paul's sincere love, it's not a spouse... It's not children. It's not friends or pets, although all those things are worthy of our sincere loves. What unquestionably comes through is His sincere love and His devotion for God, His honor, and God's church. And so to all of you here who, you know, you're in leadership one way or another at this church. You might be a pastor, an elder. A team leader, a CG leader, a youth leader, a kids leader, whatever, right? How, how incredible is Paul's pastoral heart? It's on fire, the way that he talks about this church, the way that he's willing to endure for this church. Shouldn't that challenge us to grow in love for God's church here at SWEC? That we might even be weak and suffer out of love for God and for them? But it's not just for leaders, right? I mean, for those, those of you who call Sweck Your Church, how might you also be growing in your sincere love for God's people here? Right? Here's one suggestion, given the climate that we're in. Yeah? One suggestion. Can I gently say um, to everybody, even those who are, who are coming back physically, if you are able to come back and yet choosing not to, I'm saying this as gently as I possibly can, make every effort to come back. If you're able to. Right? We, we miss you. right? We miss seeing you in person. Right? Most of us are now comfortable going to shopping centers. We're comfortable going to cafes. We're comfortable going to restaurants. And so as gently as I can, if you are able to, again, if you are able to, would you also prioritize loving your church by coming back? And coming actually each week. Because to piggyback off last Sunday, it's a rhythm that we need in our lives. Yeah, it's a rhythm that we need in our lives, and so that's our first point, right? That we delight in weaknesses because it reveals our sincere love. Let's move on now to our second point. Uh, we delight in weaknesses uh, because we can learn to depend on God's power. We delight in weaknesses because we can learn to depend on God's power. Um, we see this really clearly, right? Um, in what Jesus says to Paul in verse nine. Right? Um, read with me, I've got it on the screen uh, Jesus says to Paul my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly Paul says about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me right? for the believer there is nothing more helpful than weaknesses and limitations to help us to see Christ's power on display in our lives Right? Probably nothing more helpful. Um, but before we get too far into wrestling with that, um, there are a couple of related ideas that I think is worth unpacking uh, from this passage as to why our weaknesses can help us depend on God's power. Yeah? And there, those two um, points are really two sides of the same coin, um, and they're in your outlines again. Um, um, point A, that weaknesses can help us lean less on ourselves, and that weaknesses can help us lean more on God. Yeah? Two sides of the same coin. Lean less on ourselves, lean more on God. Weaknesses help us do that. Um, let's look at weaknesses can help us lean less on ourselves. Um, at the beginning of chapter 12, um, Paul moves to another area that these super apostles make a lot of in their ministry. Yeah? They make a lot of what they're able to see. And Paul hints back at this in chapter 5. And so, so what, what are they doing? What's going on? Well, to boost their credentials as spiritual leaders, these new leaders come and they wax about um, these incredible visions that they've received. These visions and uh, visions and experiences that God has given to them. Uh, and they're majestic and they're amazing. And, 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 and it's like, follow us because we've seen these things. And so to address that, Paul continues to boast reluctantly. Right, 12 verse 1. Although there is nothing to be gained, Paul says, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Right? He is so unwilling to do this that, you know what? Paul doesn't even name himself. Yeah, he doesn't even want to say that it's him. He goes third person on himself. Right? He says, I know a man in Christ. Right? Not even I know an apostle in Christ. I know a man in Christ. Um, but he ends up giving it away, right, that, it, that it is him. Um, in verse 6, he does it subtly. Right? Because he says that this, he, he can boast about this because this is true. Right? And how else would he know that this is true if it wasn't him? Right? So what did Paul see? What was this amazing vision that Paul received? Well, verse 2, again, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 4, he was caught up to paradise and he heard inexpressible things. You can imagine, imagine the church going, wow, Paul, like, you had these amazing spiritual experiences. You, you went to the highest heights of heaven. Right, that's what third heaven, that bit, that, that bit is about from Jewish literature outside of the Bible. You went to the highest parts of heaven. You were in the inmost sanctum with God. Well, what did he say to you? Paul says, like, oh, I'm not telling you. Verse 5, I'm not telling you. God told me not to. I'm not permitted to. The church probably then goes, Well, you know, why didn't you talk about this? You were with us for two years. This happened 14 years ago. And Paul's reply would probably be, Well, I didn't tell you because it just doesn't matter. Why does anybody boast about this stuff? It's a private thing that God's given to me. It doesn't give me credibility. I refrain, verse 6, so that no one will think more of me. Yeah? You hear that? I refrain so that no one will think more of me. See, Paul doesn't have a problem with revelations and visions. He doesn't have a problem with that. He experiences them. He even describes them as surpassingly great. Yeah, He has no problem with visions and revelations. His concerns were boasting about these experiences. Like the super apostles did, like the Corinthian church wants him to do. And to be honest, like a lot of the global church does today. Why is that a concern for Paul? It's a concern because it becomes like a spiritual spotlight where people begin to think more highly of you and then you inevitably begin to think more highly of yourself. And that's a game that Paul just doesn't want to play. He just doesn't want to play that game. He doesn't want that spotlight. And yet you know, as we think about our own lives, we are drawn to that spotlight. We don't need spiritual revelations or visions like that to face those very same temptations that Paul is concerned about, right? It happens in every part of our walk of life. It's a temptation that we face in our relationships, in our studies, in our professions, in our parenthood, in our possessions, in our lifestyles, in our hobbies, even in our retirement. We, We The the temptation, the spotlight to be thought of more, to think of ourselves more, that's a never-ending grind. And so what stops Paul from moving towards that direction like the super-apostles have? What keeps Paul humble and grounded even when he has these surpassingly great revelations? And what might that teach us? Well, interestingly... um, Paul remains grounded, not because of anything that he does out of his own willpower. Yeah, he doesn't, it's not from his own willpower. What grounds him is actually from what he is given, or what he has being given. What do I mean? Well, read with me again from verse 7. Therefore, Paul continues, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul is given a thorn by God. Now, what is that thorn? We don't know. We don't know a whole lot about what exactly this thorn is, but we can learn, I think, three brief things from the passage. The first thing we learn is that whatever this thorn was, it is actually connected to the revelation that God gave him. Right? This is not a genetic thing that he had from birth. Right? After he had the revelation, he receives the thorns. He's probably had this thorn for the, for the 14 years, right? We also learn why Paul was given the thorn. Paul understands that God gave him the thorn, we heard it, to keep him from being conceited. After receiving revelations of that magnitude, I reckon it would have been difficult for Paul to keep his humility in check. And God gives him this thorn ultimately to keep him from becoming conceited from those visions. And the third thing that we learn about the thorn is that it was a source of torment. That's a strong word, a source of torment. I mean, the, anybody with the strength that Paul has he, to endure all the stuff back in chapter 11, that list of things that he's endured, with the, for Paul to have that type of strength, for, for this thorn to lead Paul to plead with God in verse 8 to repeatedly take it away, means that this thorn, this is no paper cut, yeah? This is a big deal. This torment is even more trying to add another layer. Because Paul describes it as a messenger of Satan. Now that might seem a little weird, but, because the thorn was ultimately from God, and it is. And so what Paul probably means is that Satan is using this thorn also to torment him in the meantime. right, Satan, in the height of Paul's pain, is likely coming to Paul and he's saying to him, "Well, Paul, Paul why did you get this? Why not, why not somebody else? Surely you'd be more effective without it. Why would God give you such a thing in your life after all that you've done for Him and are doing for Him? It's tormenting Him, adding to it. This thorn, in other words, brings Paul to his knees. It grounds him, it humbles him. Friends, I have no doubt that in our church, there are many, many who have areas in their lives Weaknesses perhaps, limitations perhaps, that you have brought to God and you have asked God over and over and over again, God, would you take this away? God, would you remove this? And the answer that God seems to give over and over again is no, 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 no. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? It's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? How do we make sense of that? But perhaps part of the answer is what Paul in verse 10 directs us to consider. Now, Paul in verse 10 tells us that any weaknesses that we have, any insults we may receive, any hardship that we endure, whether it's momentary or chronic, any persecution we experience for following Jesus, any difficulties that we encounter in any sphere of life, that may have been given to us by God and not removed and not taken away, like Paul's thorn, to ground us, to remind us of our weakness so that we might lean less on ourselves, to remind us that God's greatest, greater purpose for us isn't to give us what we just want and what we pray, but to actually conform us into the image of His Son, even if it's painful. Perhaps that's how we can begin to make some sense of it. But it's not just that side of the coin we need to consider, because it's not just leaning less on ourselves, yeah? Um, it's also that weaknesses can help us lean more on God. Yeah? Weaknesses can help us lean more on God. Let's read verses 8 to 9 again. Um, with me, uh, have a look, verses 8 to 9 of chapter 12. Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, Paul, again, he prays for relief, right? He prays for relief from this thorn that was tormenting him. Um, But while God doesn't take it away the way Paul hoped he would, God actually does answer his prayer, doesn't he? God does give him relief, but another way. Not by taking it away, but by giving him more grace. By giving him more grace. A few weeks ago, um, Pastor Pete defined grace as an undeserved and empowering blessing. That's exactly what God is doing here. God is giving to Paul more of this grace. God gives him relief not by taking the thorn away, but by giving him grace, by empowering him and blessing Paul sufficiently with his strength. So that the thorn moves from being tormenting to the means for God's power dwelling with him probably should say that again, right? God gives him relief, not by taking the thorn away, but by giving him grace, that empowering, undeserved blessing, and to to an extent that is sufficient, so that the thorn moves from being something of a torment to the means that God's power dwells with him. In other words, Paul on his own, he's still weak. The thorn is still there. He hasn't gotten any stronger on his own but he is now strong because he is depending on God's strength working through him. You hear that? It's a little bit um, like a memory that I have of cycling in Vietnam. Um, Actually, with people from Söck Bankstown, we were there for a short-term mission trip, um, and there was a part of the trip where we were cycling, and we were cycling through a path that was really tough to ride through. Um, The path was mostly narrow, it was quite rocky, and um, for a lot of it... um, on either side there was water, so if you weren't confident on your bike, you would just slip and fall into the water. It was quite a tough ride, but if you were confident, it was doable. Um, but for my dear wife Jody, um, most of her riding experience is as a six-year-old on training wheels, and so it was a bit of a nightmare for her to ride through. You know, every couple of meters that she rode, she would begin to stumble and she would have to hop off her bike, hop back on and start to, try to start to ride again. And so it was really inevitable that she eventually just got off her bike, threw it to the ground in frustrated and said, you know what, I'm done. I'm, I'm just going to walk the rest of the way, I'm done. And so what does my father-in-law, Neville, who's also there, what does he do? Well, he comes to her and tells her, well, just hop on the back of my bike. I'll ride us the rest of the way. And some of you are probably thinking, Dom, why didn't you offer? Um, I did, I tried, I just wasn't strong enough to do it. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, but really, that's what Paul is talking about here, right? It's not like Jody, after hopping onto my father-in-law Neville's bike, it's not like she suddenly goes, you know, I was weak, but you know, suddenly I've discovered this incredible supernatural strength within me to ride again. But it, doesn't, it didn't work like that. In Jodie's weakness, in her weakness, she was carried she relied on the strength of somebody else. She no longer kept falling because she is now carried. She became strong because she now knows the strength of someone else, her dad. And Paul experiences relief from this store not because of his strength. He's weak. But because he depends on God's strength. Um, friends, we need to be careful Right? Um, because talking about this idea of delighting in weakness, or to use Paul's word, to boast in weakness, um, it can be misunderstood pretty easily. Now, delighting in weakness isn't you know, learning to be a sucker for pain. It isn't um, to will yourself to accept the limitations in your life. Delighting in weakness isn't waiting for some uh, future reward of strength from God after you've overcome your weaknesses either. It isn't actively searching out ways that you might suffer more, nor is it spiritualizing the phrase, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger. It's, not, it's none of those things. Delighting in weakness, boasting in weakness, is all about learning to depend on the strength of God precisely in that weakness. It's to lean more on Him and less on ourselves. It's to want God's power to be displayed in us, to rest on us. But the thing is, more often than not, it happens in our very weaknesses. And that's why weakness is a delight distinct to the Jesus follower. Right, don't misunderstand me. Yeah? This is difficult stuff. This is hard. And even as I you know, stand here and say these things from God's word to you, I have more days than I care to admit that I want God to just relieve my thorns by taking them away. Forget the sufficient grace stuff. Just take it away. Where I wish God would just take away the ongoing anxieties that I have, the depressive states that I enter into for weeks at a time, the insecurities that I have that weigh me down. I'd love nothing more than to be a, you know, a super pastor, right? Who whenever he prays, it's always effective. Whenever he cares, it's always well received. Who never lets anybody down. Who, whenever, they, whenever I preach, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Who never goes into lulls where I feel like I just can't do it anymore. I say these things not for your sympathy. I say it so that you know that I'm in the trenches with you. Dear friends, in God's kingdom, we have a savior in Jesus whose most mighty triumph was when he died weak and humiliated on a cross. We have an apostle in Paul who gladly boasts about his weaknesses so that God's power would rest on him. And we're invited to trust him who wants to give us grace and empower us in our very limitations and weaknesses. And so as we come to a close and as I invite the band to come up, Would we be willing for God to help us to delight in our weaknesses? Because it is when we are weak that our loves are revealed. It is when we are weak that we can depend on God's strength and therefore are truly strong. Let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we can be drawn we can be drawn to just so many things but weakness is rarely if ever one of them. None of us want to feel drawn to weakness. None of us want to feel drawn to our limitations. On our own, we want to steer from it as far as possible. And so would you help us? Would you compel us towards it as your people? Would the picture of you on that cross be so clear to us that we might be drawn to your loneliness? For it is there that we see your strength and we see your power. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.